0: Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And
1: I'm Bob Beck. In today's show, Pope Francis' environmental message is challenging some Wyoming Catholics because of what it says about the future of coal. I think it can be a harder truth to swallow just because so many people depend on it.
0: Gillette examines its future in light of the coal industry's troubles.
1: Wyoming coal will be the last man standing of all the coal. We'll find out why Wyoming outdoor groups are wading into a debate over the water quality downgrade of thousands of the state's alpine streams.
2: It really would make me think twice about letting our kids do this.
0: We'll also hear an interview with Governor Meade on the clean power plant rule, learn about fake businesses known as shell companies, and take a run in the shoes of an ultramarathon. Those stories and more, all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. Pope Francis' encyclical on the environment is getting a thorough reading here in Wyoming, the country's top coal-producing state. The letter presents a moral framework for approaching issues like global climate change. As Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank
3: reports, it's a difficult subject for Catholics in the Cowboy State. Tonight's class on the new papal encyclical at St. Paul's Newman Catholic Church in Laramie begins, well, in the beginning. Before parishioners dive into the Pope's message, they read aloud from Genesis.
4: And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day.
3: The letter began drawing a flurry of praise and condemnation even before it was officially published. The teacher here, Father Rob Spaulding, points out that a draft was leaked to the press a few days early.
1: So clearly it was something that was, there was great interest about.
3: The encyclical outlines the idea of integral ecology, that care for the natural world and justice for society's most vulnerable are interconnected. Despite the fanfare, Spalding tells his class that this is hardly the first time the church has weighed in on the environment. Francis quotes John Paul II over 35 times, Benedict XVI, 27, bishops' conferences from around the world. Francis does acknowledge the scientific consensus on man-made climate change and calls for policies to curb carbon dioxide emissions. But Spalding says that's just one piece of something much bigger.
1: It's through the lens of, of climate, but the implications of being a common humanity sharing a common home, really that's the springboard for the theology that's contained here not just whether you might believe in climate change or or humanity's
5: contribution to it.
3: But passages like those that name coal as a prime climate change culprit will draw the most scrutiny here in Wyoming says Tom Quinlevin, a Laramie Catholic who's taking the class.
1: I think it can be a harder truth to swallow just because so many people depend on it. You know, if we have so many mining families. They wouldn't be here
3: without the mining industries. And so, yeah, I think it is a little bit, a little bit tough here in this state.
4: Maybe we could recite this Encyclicals teaching. present
3: new Catholic social teaching, but they also leave some room for the faithful to disagree. And here in Wyoming, where just 42% of residents say they believe humans cause climate change, many have. The
6: issue that concerns me is when the Holy Father calls into question the motivation
3: of business owners. Kevin Roberts is president of Wyoming Catholic College in Lander. He says environmentalists are exploiting the Pope's words to push an agenda that hurts Wyoming. That's as state leaders fight President Obama's Clean Power Plan. Which would require the state to cut its carbon emissions by more than 40 percent over the next 15 years.
6: The best or for that matter grossest example of this encyclical being hijacked is by President Obama himself who has unjustly and with just a, a terrible policy that's an abomination made it impossible for coal companies in
3: Wyoming to produce. The hum of coal trains is constant in Guernsey. Agnes Hauschar has lived here for more than 70 years. Between the trains and the coal-fired power plant, she says coal is a big deal here.
2: We've got the power plant to the south. A lot of people in this area work there or work, well, for the railroad, so it's uh, something to worry about.
3: Wyoming produces 40 percent of the nation's coal. The industry accounts for 6 percent of the state's total jobs. Howshar and her family are longtime members of Guernsey's small Catholic parish. She says she recently got into an argument about the Pope with her sons.
2: They said the Pope should stay out of politics. They consider this very political. I think the Pope has to preach the gospel.
3: But Haushar knows that message could have an impact on Wyoming coal.
2: So I'm, I'm kind of personally torn uh, because what the Pope says is very true. At the same
4: time, I have to look around me and see people here who will be hurting.
1: The most skeptical, I think, tends to be fearful that Pope Francis has been influenced
3: by governmental, societal powers. Father Andrew Duncan is the priest in Guernsey. He says he's grateful for the encyclical, but he's in no hurry to preach climate change from the pulpit.
7: I feel I'm in a difficult position because I agree with the criticisms that I think
1: he brings in this encyclical. but. I also feel that my bread and butter is, is the people here.
3: Pope Francis is expected to thrust his environmental message further into U.S. policy debates next month, when he'll become the first pope to address a joint session of Congress. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrenk.
0: Congress hasn't passed an energy bill since 2007, but a bill is winding its way through Congress that has the chance of becoming law. Matt Laszlo reports from Washington that while the bill is attracting support from Republicans and Democrats, no one is completely happy with it.
8: Washington remains gridlocked to the chagrin of lawmakers in both parties. Earlier this year, a bipartisan coalition sent Keystone XL pipeline legislation to President Obama's desk only to have it vetoed and the president has continued his battle against climate change. But some are still hopeful that a bipartisan energy bill could still pass. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis says targeted legislation might become law, and that's what a bipartisan group has come up with.
4: Uh, It's less than 100 pages, so it is uh, uh, not comprehensive. And maybe they just chose, uh, while we're still trying to get legislation done before the Uh, presidential campaign sucks all the oxygen out of the room Uh, it might be good to get some of these areas of agreement uh, off the table.
8: Wyoming Senator Mike Enzi says that might not be a bad thing. Well I'd certainly like to see us do
1: something positive for energy Uh, you know I'm not a big fan of comprehensive that usually means so big that it's incomprehensible.
8: Before lawmakers left Washington for a month-long break the Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources passed its version of the bill, which Wyoming Senator John Barrasso is praising.
6: This is the largest bipartisan energy bill, bill that's passed the Senate in a long time. Uh, the vote was actually uh, 18 to 4 with uh, two Democrats against it and two Republicans against it. So it is uh, very focused on energy. There's clean energy component. My whole section on liquefied natural gas to be able to export that, uh, that's big for Wyoming.
8: The bill includes half a billion dollars to study and modernize the electric grid. It repeals a ban on using fossil fuels in federal buildings. And it would permanently extend the Land and Water Conservation Fund. But the biggest win for Barrasso... And Wyoming's fossil fuel industry is that it includes his bill to expedite the Department of Energy's decision making process for liquefied natural gas exports.
6: So, I think on balance, people understand that we have this valuable energy resource. It's part of our economic stability of our nation, uh, and it's important that we use it, and it doesn't become a stranded asset. We have friends overseas who want it. And, uh, you know, we talk about raising tax revenue. This is a wonderful opportunity for you've got more people working uh, and the uh, more energy available for sale that helps the state.
8: Environmentalists aren't happy with Barrasso's bill, though. Kate DeAngelis works on climate issues with Friends of the Earth.
9: Liquefied natural gas is hugely energy intensive, which means that it's terrible for the climate. Research shows that it's worse for the climate than coal, and it's not a form of energy that we should be um, encouraging in any way, shape, or form.
8: The environmental community is also upset the legislation would streamline the environmental review process in the event of an emergency or a war that threatens the electric grid. All told, DeAngelis says the bill sends the wrong signal.
9: It says that this Congress and that our government isn't serious about addressing climate change And we're not serious about making that transition. And therefore, it doesn't encourage um, utilities and um, businesses to be making that shift. And then to be encouraging such a dirty fossil fuel like LNG is a huge step backwards. While
8: Congresswoman Lummis supports Barrasso's LNG bill, she says more is needed because the nation doesn't have the infrastructure to ship more gas.
4: But what it doesn't have is uh, expediting uh, more LNG exporting facilities, uh, which would be a big benefit.
8: Lummis also bemoans that other bipartisan proposals didn't make the cut in this narrow energy bill.
4: There are simple things that could be in it, uh, such as a bill that had bipartisan support in the Natural Resources Committee that would allow um, utilities to uh, protect their power lines when they cross federal lands by allowing the cutting of uh, dead or dying trees that could fall on the power lines. So there are things like that that uh, could be easily added.
8: Even Senator Barrasso would have liked to see more pro-fossil fuel provisions in the bill, like the Keystone XL pipeline.
6: I think it's important and it may come up for a debate uh, on the Senate floor.
8: For now, a large bipartisan coalition is behind the energy proposal winding its way through Congress. But as Lummis suggests, the more lawmakers try to heap on their pet projects, the less chance the bill has of making it to the president's desk. For Wyoming Public Radio,
1: I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington. When we come back, our energy reporter Stephanie Joyce sits down with Governor Matt Mead. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. Energy has always been an important topic in Wyoming, but it is increasingly becoming an important global conversation, especially in the context of climate change. Wyoming as the second largest energy producing state in the nation is central to that conversation. Decisions made today will likely affect the state and the country for years and decades to come. In an interview with Wyoming Public Radio's energy reporter Stephanie Joyce, Governor Matt Mead started by saying he thinks it is time to move past the debate about climate change.
10: I think regardless of the energy source, we should always be looking at ways how to improve it. Even the, you know, green energy, for example, wind energy, has its own challenges with view shed, uh, with endangered species. The same is true with fossil fuels. We should all have a goal to how do we make every energy source as clean, as efficient, and as environmentally friendly as we can. Let's find technology and innovation that finds the solutions. It's not a solution to take coal off a table. It's too good of energy source, so let's look to how do we improve it. While I may be a skeptic, we do see that the markets are not a skeptic. You see what's happened to coal companies, uh, stock prices. You see major banks, like Bank of America, withdrawing from coal. And so to you know uh, my friends in the coal uh, sector and those who of coal, I say, you know, we, we've got to move on beyond where we believe or not. And s- here's the reality. Other uh, industries believe it. Other countries believe it. And so we ne- are now in a position, let's find the solutions for it.
11: We've all heard at this point about the Obama administration's new carbon regulations for power plants. Those primarily target coal-fired power plants and making sure that those power plants do get cleaner, that we do capture the emissions or reduce the emissions from those coal-fired power plants over the next 15 years and improve the technology um, or shut them down if, if that's not possible. So I guess, um, you know, what what's your plan with regard to those regulations here in Wyoming?
10: Yeah, well, first of all, I think the regulations are uh, horrible. And the reason I think it's horrible is because I don't think it does much in the way of providing for innovation and technology. What it does do a lot is try to shut these coal fired plants down. And it's particularly harmful to the state of Wyoming. You know, but when the draft rule came out we commented on it and the draft rule required nineteen percent reduction for Wyoming. And we made serious comments, as did some of the state agencies. And then the final rule comes out and It's gone from 19 percent to 41 percent, so my comments netted about 20 percent additional burden on the state of Wyoming. But beyond that, I think it's a bad deal, because I do think it effectively starts taking coal off the table. And that's not just bad for Wyoming, it's frankly bad for the country. And no one's asking the question, assume they get everything they want in this, what does it do? What does it do to the United States? in terms of the economy, in terms of us not being as competitive as we should be. And what does it do, supposedly, on the pro side? What does it do in terms of this goal of, of helping the environment? And I think it's negligible at best.
11: In the past, regulations have come down. People have said it's going to ruin this industry, it's going to ruin that industry. And industries have actually innovated and have managed to comply typically in the past. Why would this regulation be any different? It's set a limit. It's set a target. Why wouldn't the coal industry be able to innovate its way to that goal?
10: We're in a situation where these rules are not in isolation. You put the clean air uh, rules on top of the regional haze rules, on top of the mercury rules. And this is a different, this is different than what we've seen in the past. It is a layering and also in order for us you know, to say, well, we'll get through this, you have to say the industry is going to survive. Because innovation and technology are not going to come in a vacuum where you have a dying industry. I mean, who's going to invest in the technology needed to do that? You know, we didn't move from the candle to the light bulb because of regulations. We did it because we had a spirit of innovation and opportunity for technology in this country. And I think the same is true with coal create an environment uh, where it is not death by regulations, but it is improvement by innovation. And I'm convinced science and scientists can find
11: the answers to coal. But even when coal companies were doing well, even when they were raking in huge profits, I think a lot of people have argued that they didn't prioritize those investments in research and development. They didn't prioritize innovation and working with their customers, the utilities, to come up with solutions. So, what makes you think that that would change in the future?
10: Depending upon the company, depending how far you go, back, you go back, I mean, that may be a legitimate criticism that you, you know, you had an opportunity to do that. But if you look at, you know, the way uh, regulation works in this country now, you have to take that criticism in context. Say you're in that business and you invest 100 million or a billion dollars uh, on new technology, and it gets you to point A then what happens is just what's happening now. They invested a lot of money in proven coal-fired plants, and then new regulations come along. And so we have not created an environment where there's an incentive to be proactive, because if you're proactive, there's no reward in it. There's just the punishment for, oh, you've gone here, now we're gonna add regulations to show you what you really should have done.
11: You've said that you are planning to sue over these new regulations. Are you planning on drafting a compliance plan?
10: We've been looking at that as everyone else has, and it's sort of under this threat that either you come up with a state plan or you're going to have to live under a federal plan. And we've done that deal. That is exactly what happened with Regional Hays. We worked and worked and worked and came up with a plan, a state plan for Regional Hays, that we thought was very good. EPA comes in and says it's not to their liking and so you're under a federal plan anyway or that's the what they're attempting to do we're in litigation about that right now and so yeah we don't we don't live in a vacuum we look at it and say you know if this comes about whether we're forced to do a state plan or a federal plan you know how would we go about doing it and you know when it was a 19 percent reduction looked onerous, and then, as I said, we commented to the EPA, and they bumped us up to 41 percent. It looks much worse now.
11: So, is that a yes or no on the compliance plan?
10: Well, yeah, well, it's, a, it's a yes. I mean, we've been lo- looking on how to work it, but uh, you know, to date, I will tell you that I don't see, and uh, I don't think the people in my state agency see a real workable plan on how to go forward to get this
11: accomplished. Wyoming has excellent renewable energy resources, both wind and solar. And I think a lot of people would argue they're underutilized at the moment. There isn't nearly as much investment in wind here as there is in places like Iowa and Texas. What role should renewable resources play here in Wyoming going forward?
10: As yes, like I said, I think the, this is the time to be adding energy sources. And I think renewables need to play a bigger and bigger role You know, proudly say we have the best onshore wind in the country, we have some great opportunities to do that. But wind, like other energy sources, has its own challenges. If you're in an area where you're going to be looking at uh, oil derrick for six months versus wind turbines for 30 years, uh, people have different feelings on that. If you have concerns, as say, the Audubon Society does, about the wind turbines and raptors, uh, if you have concerns about bats, those are all challenges. And then the other part of it with regard to wind is then you get into the issue of transmission. And, you know, where are you going to put the power lines? And whose backyard do the power lines go through? So it has its own challenges, but as you see, as a company's planning process in Wyoming to put up the world's largest wind farm. And so it's certainly not a situation Wyoming has stifled wind development. It's that we have to work through a different set of issues, but also uh, uh, tricky issues to get those things done as well.
11: You're revising your energy strategy at the moment. I was up at the energy strategy meeting in Gillette where you were soliciting input from the public. One of the things that a number of people told me was they're very happy that you're asking for their input, but what they'd really like is to hear what your plan is. So if you had to summarize for those people who are wondering, what's your plan? Well, you
10: know, part of the energy strategy is to help develop that plan. And that's why we reach out to people on what their point of view is. But I would say this is, you know, before I came into office, the state that exports more energy than any other state didn't have an energy plan, And so part of the energy plan is to see what we have, where we are, and where we're going. I think that the energy strategy, I guess, overall is I want to make sure we have a way to responsibly develop our minerals in an environmentally sound way that we can do so and not only meet uh, what other states are doing, but frankly set the example for the country on how to go about doing this so that, you know, 10 years, 50 years from now, we can say, listen, we have the number one uranium reserves, number one in coal, you know, top ten in oil and gas, we've continued to develop those, we have protected our environment, we have found the right balance, and that we've provided the wealth to the citizens of this state uh, that resulted from that development, that builds our schools, builds our roads, funds our family services, funds our Department of Health, and that we do it in a way that, you know, 50 years from now, we still love the look, the feel, the, the taste of Wyoming.
1: That was Governor Matt Mead speaking with Wyoming Public Radio Stephanie Joyce about the state's energy future.
0: In the next segment, we'll look at the downgrade of Wyoming's mountain streams and how new carbon emission standards may affect the lives of the state's coal miners. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. In Laramie, the Epson Center for Seniors is looking at how it should operate in the future. Lynn Simpson is overseeing that effort. She says the kinds of discussion surrounding independent living and the like that's taking place in Laramie should occur throughout Wyoming.
2: Uh, Successful aging doesn't begin after you're ill. Successful aging, you know, doesn't be. Its financing for your older age doesn't begin when you're 85. Uh, So that there are many services and many educational services and counseling that senior centers are offering to very young retired people. Um, The the uh, Older Americans Act typically uh, serves 60 year old citizens upward. But we find that people in their 50s and early 60s are not ready for services, but they are ready for planning for being uh, retired for for possibly a very long time. And so, yes, we do encourage uh, younger citizens in the community to check out their senior centers to see what they are offering in ways of planning and research and Uh, keeping well and fit and mentally alert uh, as long as they can. And these senior services now are emphasizing those kinds of programs.
1: You know, we have an aging population here in Wyoming. I'm curious if we're ready for it as far as you're concerned.
2: I wouldn't pretend to know everything that the state has planned for the future of aging, but I understand from... Uh, going to a couple of conferences, that we're not ready. We have reduced the support for the um, aging division at the state. Uh, there's less um, training. There's less travel from our state experts to these small rural communities. Um, we are in a culture of age denial, and so it is not a politically popular subject to engage in, um, the elder population has uh, is, is often been tyrannized. Uh, we've been seen uh, from anything from um, stingy and, and old and rich and, and a nuisance to uh, being depend, dependent and not very smart. <laughs> so there is no really accurate and well-defined um, measure for who the elderly are in Wyoming. Um, because uh, none of those descriptions that we read about fit uh, the, 20, the the 21st century uh, person in their elderly years most of us are are quite active and quite and volunteering and raising children and uh, sending money to uh, need, needy family members and we're very we're very much an, alive and a part of our communities but there's a stereotype that we don't address, Bob, politically or socially, um, and I think that this year, the 50th year of the Older Americans Act, which supports independent living, is a good time for us to engage each other in who we are as elderly people and wh- what can we give to our communities to make them stronger and vice versa. Um, so the political discussion, you know, is always about money because it's taxpayers' money, and we, we, you and I are familiar with Medicaid, Medicare, and all of those things. I am talking about the uh, senior centers' uh, motto, motto is lifelong support to be independent. And, Bob, I think you would agree with me that the word independent really describes the Wyoming population, don't you think?
1: Well, I agree with you, but you were talking earlier about some of the things that you've heard in Laramie uh, concerning the Epson Center, and and one of the issues that just continues to strike me in our state that we we do need to probably figure out especially if we have an aging population is is not what you'd think I'd say healthcare it's it's transportation or how are we doing in that area
2: I think we can do better of course you know we revision in all of our, in all of our lives because we can do better so this revisioning is looking at our how How are we serving those who need transportation to do the daily business of life? And there are more and more of us as we grow old who lose the ability to drive. It's one of the big crises in at least Wyomingites' lives because we depend and love our cars so much. Depression and transportation uh, have a relationship. Would you believe that,
7: Bob? Yes. <laughs> in other words, you yeah. can
2: get depressed if you're dependent on somebody else to take you everywhere, or you can get depressed if you never get outside, you never get to go beyond um, your home and the grocery store. So our transportation system in, in, in uh, Laramie has always attempted to, to add those extra important social things to people's lives. Uh, We like to get people down to the center to visit with their friends and to be seen and known and recognized by others.
1: Lynn Simpson, always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you for taking this subject on, Bob.
0: The phrase, mountain streams, usually comes with the word pristine in front of it. But here in Wyoming, some outdoor recreation groups are saying, not for long. That's because last year, the Wyoming Department of Environmental Quality downgraded the status of about 87,000 miles of small creeks and drainages in the state's high country.
1: For years, these streams have been considered primary recreation. That means they could be used for swimming, and the DEQ would clean them up even if a small amount of E. coli was found in them. But now the DEQ has reclassified them as secondary, which would allow five times more of the bacteria before they get cleaned up. Wyoming well, I mean, Public Radio's Melody Edwards took some kids up to the snowy range near Laramie in search of some of these downgraded streams. Ew,
0: that is I, don't... I wanted to see in person the downgraded waters no. that the Department of Environmental Quality calls low-flow streams. That's less than six cubic feet per second. Hard to visualize, right? The one I found, Telephone Creek, is ankle deep this time of year. The first thing the kids do is jump in.
5: Do you guys feel like this is clean water? Yeah. Yeah. Besides the fish guts, but otherwise it's clean.
0: That's my daughter, Ronwen. She's found the fish guts, but she's not worried about the invisible things in the water. Like bacteria.
10: Most people know E. coli comes from poop.
0: (laughs) Chris Merrill is with Wyoming Outdoor Council, a group protesting the DEQ's decision to relax monitoring of shallow streams like the one my daughter is playing in.
10: And so certainly livestock um, can be a big source for E. coli and water as well as um, any other warm-blooded animals.
0: E. coli can cause severe diarrhea and fever. It's a bacteria that every year the DEQ strives to keep out of Wyoming's waterways. Sarah Reese is the mother of one of my daughter's friends. She says her family does a lot of camping on such streams. She says the idea that no one will be keeping these waters safe has her worried.
2: It really would make me think twice about letting our kids do this, and for them it would significantly diminish their experience.
6: But I think it's important to keep in mind that essentially one organism can make you ill. Kevin Frederick is the water quality administrator
0: for the DEQ. He says people should recognize that all streams potentially carry E. coli, regardless whether they're primary or secondary. He says that's why the agency took a novel approach. Instead of trying to visit thousands of sites, they used GIS data to group streams by how fast they flow. It may be a first-of-its-kind model. But Frederick says the EPA did approve the state's new rule, even though it downgraded 75% of the state's streams. Then, when the DEQ started getting lots of flack, the EPA put the new rule on hold until there was more input from outdoor groups.
6: It's not perfect, and for that reason, there is a process in place and, uh, and again, we do encourage people to tell us where they think that model is broken down and needs to be modified.
0: Now the DEQ is calling for written comments. But Wyoming Outdoor Council Chris Merrill says this puts too much of a burden on individuals to do the work of reclassifying the streams.
10: As a citizen, you now would have to take photographs, give specific information about where the stream is, in order to petition that that stream
9: be considered primary recreation.
0: Photographing all those streams would be an especially big job for one guy, Aaron Bannon with the National Outdoor Leadership School.
9: You can
1: see the middle fork itself is, it's a larger river, so it's in blue. It it's remains blue. it remains primary.
0: At their headquarters in Lander, Bannon is showing me the DEQ's map on his laptop. He points out all the downgraded streams where Knowles takes youth groups on 30-day expeditions into the Wind River Range.
8: And then as you get up into the drainage and see the
9: tributaries, the tributaries are in red, which means that should this rule go through, they'd be downgraded.
0: So are those areas that your, your groups are going? Oh yeah, big time,
9: mm-hmm. for sure.
0: There's dozens of squiggly red lines. Bannon says after a dusty, back-breaking hike, all his students want is a bath.
8: You're gonna dunk your head in that thing, get your hair wet, you know, get your clothes as wet as possible, just to wash a little bit of that sweat off, yeah, yeah. And it feels great, like it's it's a great part of that
0: Alpine experience. Out in the knoll's yard, a backpacking group returns from weeks on the trail. Robinson Lou says, yeah, he jumped into a mountain pool, sort of.
9: My friend actually pushed me in, and I, the moment I get in, I was, oh my god, it's frigid water. And then you can see the, the water is actually really clear in the stream. So you can see like little fish swimming beside you, and I was like, it's so amazing.
0: Whether all those streams stay that clear remains to be seen. The DEQ is taking written comments at their website, and they'll host a public meeting on September 16th in Casper. Outdoor recreation groups hope to persuade them to hold a second public meeting in Lander. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards.
1: The coal industry in other parts of the country has fallen on hard times in recent years, but the Powder River Basin has been left largely unscathed. The mines around Gillette produce almost 40% of the nation's coal, supplying power plants in 32 states. But under the Obama administration's new regulations for carbon emissions from power plants, demand for coal is expected to plummet. Even so, as Wyoming Public Radio Stephanie Joyce reports, Gillette is not giving up on its black gold anytime soon.
11: Peering down into the Eagle Butte coal mine on the outskirts of Gillette, Kent Parrish remembers the first time he saw a Wyoming coal mine.
7: It, it just blew me away.
11: Parrish is a coal miner. His father was a coal miner and his grandfather before him. But when Parrish moved to Gillette in December from West Virginia, he says it changed his sense of scale.
7: The coal seam, 75 to 100 feet coal seams, we're not used to that. If we hit a a six-foot seam back home, we we thought we hit hit the mother load.
11: Like many before him, Parrish moved west looking for better opportunities. West Virginia has lost a quarter of its coal mining jobs since 2011, and mines are shutting down left and right. Parrish had already weathered two layoff notices. So when Alpha Natural Resources offered him a transfer to one of the company's mines out west, he took it, along with a dozen or so of his colleagues. Now, he drives a 400-ton haul truck at the Bel Air mine.
7: As a kid growing up, everybody had the Tonka toys. You're just a grown-up driving a big Tonka toys about what it amounts to.
11: The job suits Parrish. He hasn't gotten used to Wyoming's wind and lack of trees. And while he's bought cowboy boots...
7: I will never have a cowboy <laughs>
11: But Parrish has already got Wyoming plates and a Wyoming driver's license. He says he's planning to stay.
7: I think i found the promised land.
11: Parish isn't the first person to find his way to Gillette seeking a better life. Pat Avery has been a real estate agent in town for 30 years. He says people come in waves.
10: Every boom drops off a certain number
1: of people.
11: <laughs> so do busts. Avery remembers a few years back there were a lot of Michigan license plates around town. Laid-off auto workers who'd been recruited by the mines. As industrial towns across the country have emptied out, Gillette has boomed. The population has doubled since 1990. Avery says it's mostly been because of coal.
6: I think Wyoming coal will be the last man
1: standing of all the coal.
11: But how long it will survive is an open question.
1: It's always been, well, I've got another 20 years. I've got another 20 years. Any more you don't know because the regulations that are going to be coming on for power plants and emissions.
11: That's Nate Hardy. He's a coal miner.
1: And also I am one of the brewers and owners of Gillette Brewing Company.
11: Hardy was born and raised in Gillette. He says he started working in the mines for the money.
1: I actually didn't plan on staying a coal miner for that long, but it ended up being 25 years so far.
11: In 2013, he and his partners opened the brewery. It's been a success. On a Wednesday night, it's packed with people drinking and eating pizza.
1: Makes me happy.
11: The brewery is one of downtown Gillette's many new businesses. There's a cupcake shop and a meadery, as in a bar that serves honey wine. There's an upscale men's clothing store, and in the near future, there'll be a whiskey barber. But Hardy is worried it all hangs on the coal industry's success. And the recent bankruptcies and coal plant closures are making that look more tenuous.
1: I think people are shocked recently by the upheaval and, wow, that really just happened, you know, and we're not in a good
7: position.
11: Even with the new carbon regulations, the U.S. is still expected to be burning coal for almost a third of its power 15 years from now. But that's a lot less than today. Play. Softball is huge in Gillette. More than 700 people play in the adult league. At this particular game, David Baca is part of a small but enthusiastic crowd. I think it's been a you know, kind of a tradition. I'm. I was born and raised in New Mexico and the the old coal mining camps are there, and and everybody, they all played baseball at night, worked in the mines all day and they played baseball in the evenings. Today, Baca manages an explosives firm that contracts with the coal mines. When you you look at the number of people that work here and the amount of money that's invested in in these mines, I mean, it's pretty hard to believe that they could ever all go away. But unlike most people in Gillette, Baca thinks the mines will go away and the town with them, unless it diversifies its economy.
7: I came from a little town in home and when that coal
11: mine closed the town, it took it 20 years, but it's slowly drying up. So far, Gillette is showing no signs of drying up. There are help-wanted signs everywhere and new buildings, and people like Kent Parrish, the coal miner from West Virginia, are still arriving in the hopes this coal boom town keeps booming. Go, go, go. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce.
0: To wrap up today's program, we'll look at the business of fake business and take a run with an ultra marathoner. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards.
1: And I'm Bob Beck. Almost 10 years ago, Wyoming came under intense political and media scrutiny for its lax standards for setting up businesses. That made the state a hotspot for fake businesses known as shell companies. In response, the state tightened its regulations. Things slowed down for a while, but as Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports, the business of business formation is booming again.
9: Let's start in 2011.
2: When you think of traditional secrecy and tax havens, you most likely think of Switzerland and the Caribbean.
9: This is from a Reuters news investigation that year.
2: The last place you would expect to find a booming business in anonymous corporations would be here in Wyoming. Well, welcome to the Cayman Islands of the American Prairie.
9: It was the tail end of a few years Wyoming spent in hot water for making it too easy to set up shell companies. Those are corporations or limited liability companies that don't do any real business. Shell companies can be used for legit reasons, but they're also a favorite tool of bad actors to hide their identity or stash assets. That Reuters investigation found that a corrupt ex-prime minister of Ukraine and a telemarketing scam king both had shell companies based in Cheyenne.
11: The issue was that federal law enforcement in particular was having trouble finding out who was actually behind a company.
9: Karen Wheeler is Wyoming's Deputy Secretary of State. She says that's because, in many cases, the people behind Wyoming companies didn't actually live here. Instead, they used commercial registered agents, proxies that register the business and act as its legal face. And back then, even those proxies didn't have to live in Wyoming. So in 2009, the state legislature passed a new law to change that.
11: One of the first aspects was that the registered agent have a physical presence in Wyoming.
9: The law also requires that Wyoming Registered Agents have working numbers for their customers on file. Wheeler says the year the law passed, the state dissolved more than 60% of the limited liability companies, or LLCs, based in Wyoming. LLCs are particularly attractive to bad actors because they're more private and are easy to set up. But more recently, the business of business formation has been picking up again. Just ask Wyoming Registered Agent Rebecca Bextel.
12: We have a lot of export-import guys uh, that live in Hong Kong. We have um, people that are trying to maybe do the next Facebook or social app that live in Paris. I just got back from touring Denmark.
9: Bextel's small office in Jackson is the headquarters for hundreds of businesses operating all around the world, and it's adding more all the time. There are five times as many LLCs formed in Wyoming last year than were formed five years ago. The Cowboy State has some strong selling points. Your name isn't public record, there's no state income tax, and the assets of your business can't be taken by creditors to pay off personal debts. Plus, forming a business in Wyoming is cheaper than its competitor states of Nevada and Delaware, which Bextel says has given Wyoming an edge.
12: Uh, In Wyoming, your state fees are typically $50. In Nevada, it's $250. So people are finding Wyoming to be more favorable than Delaware or Nevada.
9: Since 2010, the number of LLCs formed in Wyoming every year has grown by 400 percent. Wyoming Secretary of State Ed Murray is pleased with that growth.
6: My whole platform is to make owning and operating your own business as simple and as
10: friendly as possible.
9: Murray also says he sees no need to make any changes to how businesses are formed in Wyoming in the near future.
6: You know, you you comply with the law, of course, but I think uh, maintaining asset protection
1: and privacy is a very healthy way of doing business. It's both the climate and then the industry surrounding it that really helped Wyoming stand out to set up a shell company.
9: Mark Hayes is with Global Witness, an anti-corruption advocacy group that published a report on shell companies last year called The Great Ripoff. He says that even though Wyoming tightened up its registered agent rules a few years ago, its aggressive courting of businesses still makes it attractive to people who have something to hide. And although Wyoming commercial registered agents are required to keep certain information on file, the state has only audited 20 of its more than 450 agents since 2009.
12: Small conference room. It's easy to get work done in here because there's no windows, (laughs) so... um...
9: Back in Jackson, registered agent Rebecca Bextell says, sure, there's always going to be bad actors and even bad registered agents, but...
12: I can say this. If a client of ours commits a clear case of fraud, we're not on their side. You know, we're going to cooperate. What can we do to help with this investigation?
9: If trends continue, Bextel and other Wyoming registered agents will have plenty of new clients to sort out in the future, good ones and bad. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan.
0: Lots of people like to run, and many have chosen to run marathons, but not that many have decided to run beyond that. One such person is gearing up for an upcoming 100-mile race that she's running for the second time. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck profiles a mother, a healthcare professional, and ultramarathoner.
1: There's lots of ways Jennifer Bartell and her three kids and dog spend time together, but lately, it's been like this.
5: This is mile seven today, which isn't bad, but we're just taking it easy and enjoying the sun kind of peeking through the trees still.
1: You see, Bartel runs. She runs a lot.
5: I try to keep it right around 50 miles a week, uh, mostly because when I boost it over that, I start to feel really poor from my neck all the way down so I stick right at 50 miles even with my high training weeks.
1: These days she is training for the Leadville Trail 100 Run. It's a mere 100 mile trail run that has altitude swings from roughly 9,000 feet all the way up to 12,600 feet. If you finish it in 25 hours or less you get a big belt buckle but you must finish in 30 hours or you miss the cutoff.
5: I finished last time with 11 minutes to spare. I was a hurting unit. I had been puking. I had had an upset stomach for 60 miles. So, yeah, I think it's a healthy fear of a very long ways.
1: This will be Bartell's fifth ultramarathon. She's also run nine official marathons and several other long-distance races. Taking on a race like Leadville just happened.
5: So I started running a marathon one month, and then I'd run another marathon the next month. And then I decided, if I can do that, then I can run 100 miles. And I asked one of my friends, I said, do you think I could run Leadville? And she said, if anybody could run Leadville, you could.
1: She's 33, single, with three kids, and a job as a nurse practitioner. In addition to her running, she does CrossFit five to six times a week. She laughs when you ask her if she's crazy. Although she was a high school athlete, the running part of her life started seven years ago during her difficult third pregnancy. Her health wasn't good.
5: My dad died of a heart attack when he was really young, so he was 53, and I just didn't, didn't want that for myself. And as soon as I had her, I started walking, and then I started running and challenged myself with the 5K, and then I challenged myself with the Boulder Boulder, and it just progressed from there.
1: But the longer distances came about from dealing with some personal challenges that included a divorce. For Bartell, running is her therapy.
5: And you know, with longer runs, I I think a lot about my family and my kids and the stresses of raising them in a split home. And for whatever reason, running, it, it fatigues me enough to where I'm not overly anxious and I feel like I can deal with everything mentally. Let's start with the x-rays first, okay? Okay, and, and, if, and if there is a reason that I should really stay home, I will. Sorry. I'll let you know. Yeah. Okay. So you don't need an appointment for x-rays.
1: You As a nurse practitioner, Bartell treats patients, prescribes medications, and tells people to try to not hurt themselves. She might want to listen to her own advice.
5: I've had arthritis in my feet from all of this, um, knee surgery stress fractures.
1: But the running is too important.
5: Some mornings I crawl out of bed and my knees are aching or my hips are hurting and I think, you know, is this really worth it? But it is when I have to have my my head straight.
1: While she does do road work, most of her non-winter running is spent in the mountain trails near her home in Laramie. Of course running in nature does lead to some interesting encounters. One recent night run was a little too exciting.
5: I had an encounter with a very large male moose that I hid behind a tree for a little while before he decided to move along. And then as about a half a mile up the road from that, there were um, a very large cat, which I'll call mountain lion eyes, (laughs) staring down from a tree. Um, And that was pretty much when I decided it was time to go home for the night and I was done.
1: As mentioned earlier, running mega miles does take a serious toll on her body and Bartel often thinks about giving up the ultra races for something a little more moderate.
5: Every race that I finish, every ultra, I think it's time <laughs> and then something will happen in my life, some event, and I'll think, eh.
1: Remember, it's her therapy. And for those of you who think running all those miles must be boring, she disagrees.
5: I mean, you run 50 miles up in the Bighorns, and I'm out there next to the river, and I'm seeing wildlife, and it's what God has made. It's his beauty that surrounds me all day long.
1: Bartell and other runners will line up to run the Leadville 100-mile race at 4 in the morning on August 22nd. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Thanks for listening to Open Spaces. You can hear this program and individual segments on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just simply click on Open Spaces.
0: You can also comment on our stories and send us ideas for future shows. Anna Rader is our web editor.
1: We also invite you to become a fan of the Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page, and you can follow all of our reporters on Twitter. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.